hate to admit this. It goes counter to my whole persona. But I actually grew up just outside of London, in one of the commuter-hijacked post-industrial towns on the main line towards the city. My childhood home was one of a couple dozen nearly identical suburban houses, set back from the main road in a residential district, overlooking disused quarries on three sides. We used to joke that one day the whole neighbourhood would fall off the cliff, joining the suburbs that had been built below. It wasn't one of the post-war new towns built to rehouse bombed-out Londoners after World War II, since it had existed as a developed industrial neighbourhood for years prior to that, but it had a sort of new town vibe to it. Idealistic waves of suburban development giving way to cynical housing saturation at the expense of any actual local amenities, all designed with the intent, calcified under Thatcher, to strangle any attempt to actually socialise housing in the cradle. There's one architectural feature about these neighbourhoods I grew up in which still stands out to me, towering above the low-rise cul-de-sacs. At the bottom of my childhood street stood an imposing pair of gasometers, huge Victorian steelworks designed to hold and pressurise natural gas before it was pumped into nearby homes. When I was a kid, something about them always drew me in, even beyond the fact that they looked like gigantic climbing frames. And if it weren't for the metal fencing topped with spikes and barbed wire, I definitely would have broken my neck trying to scale one at some point. There sure was a lot of security around it, though. Two layers of fencing, CCTV cameras, floodlighting 24 hours a day, guards patrolling, their radios making that little click and crackle every time they went past. I saw dogs there, too, for a while, although they disappeared abruptly one day. They never seemed particularly interested in the neighbourhood kids, gawking in through the fence. It was enough to make you wonder. Were they there to keep us out? Or to keep something else in? I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. Despite the entire concept of this podcast being the quiet menace of the city, I've never felt threatened or scared walking around London in the way I did back in the suburbs. There's something about the endless, empty streets, sprawling identical across the chalk pits and ruined industry of the Thames estuary, which keeps me permanently ill at ease. There are never enough streetlights, and the darkness bleeds across the little patches of green between the houses like an open wound. If I'm completely honest with myself, it's a very mild form of post-traumatic stress from being attacked a couple times when I was a teenager. Nothing too serious, just asshole kids noticing a different kind of asshole kid and deciding to mess with them. I'd be walking along in my System of a Down t-shirt and my off-brown Jenkos and, well, they knew a target when they saw one. The suburbs are sold as a series of little castles, so I can't really blame disaffected kids for inheriting the mindset of landless peasants, wandering the no-man's land and causing chaos for anyone stupid enough to try to walk instead of drive. There were no social clubs, no youth groups, nothing particularly interesting to do after school. Thatcher, again, put a stop to all that. If you did have somewhere to go, 
You had to rely on your parents driving you around because there was no public transport really to speak of either. There were only a handful of pubs left in the whole town, mostly hangovers from when the factories were still running, full of the shell-shocked unemployed, with a reputation for being rough just because they didn't have a play area for the kids. It's a bleak fucking place, there's no two ways around it. That said, it's also where I grew up, so it's not all negative memories. There's one park in particular, just opposite the gasometers, which became a little refuge for me throughout my difficult teenage years. I go down there with my Walkman and a burn CDR and just wander around listening to music. Sometimes I'd sit in one of the many little dens that had been hollowed out from the clumps of trees, passing the long, lonely hours by myself, out of sight. I'm making this sound cooler than it was, probably. I was a weirdly proportioned kid with hair down past my shoulders, moodily stomping around an empty patch of grass in full view of all the nearby houses. But teenage angst is somehow both the most and the least self-conscious emotion, both aware of its own absurdity and yet too young and inexperienced to really do anything but play the role. I knew that moping around in a kid's park listening to Huberstank was a ridiculous and childish way to handle the big, nasty emotions I was having, but I didn't have any other way to express them, so that's how I dealt with it. It's normal, you know? If I could go back and speak to that kid now, 15 years later, I don't think I'd tell him a damn thing. Kids don't take advice well anyway, and being a teenager means figuring it out on your own sometimes. You'll get there in the end. Leave him be. I lost whole days in that park, sometimes without even realising. Over the summers, I'd go down there in the morning and put my earphones in, and the time would flip by, out in the shade of the gasometers. They were always in the corner of my vision, twin drums waxing and waning like the moon. I could sit and watch them for hours, and I'm pretty sure that sometimes I did. I'm not certain though. There are a couple of summers between 15 and 17 that I just don't really remember at all. It's not just adolescent memory loss either. I talked to my parents about it recently when I started writing this episode, and they confirmed I used to go out in the morning and come back late at night, evasive and shifty about where I've been. They put it down to teenage secrecy and assumed I was out with friends, maybe dating someone. But it wasn't that. There are gaps in my memory that I have no means of filling. Periods of time where all I remember is waking up in the morning with a compulsion to go down to the park, to sit near the tangled Victoriana and lose the hours. And that's exactly what I did. Most days I don't even remember going home afterwards, getting into bed. I'd wake up in my clothes, my ears ringing, my body aching, and then I'd go do it again. My dad worked as a surveyor when I was a kid, mostly for the local council as an independent contractor. I've got a lot of formative memories from my teenage years of downloading endless photos of council house interiors and generic offices from his digital camera, one of the early models a chunky silver millennial aesthetic point-and-shoot that he could keep in his pocket on job sites. There was something fascinating about the photographs to me, the joy in repetition and structure. It shouldn't come as a surprise that I became enraptured by brutalist architecture as an adult, 
I still find a lot of beauty in the ugly places. Mystery and adventure in the 70s office blocks and neon-lit hallways so reviled by Charles Windsor and the Western traditionalists. Nothing makes me happier than when a friend invites me to where they work to go and poke around in the loading dock or in the back office space or the basement. Maybe this podcast was an inevitability. I was born to do it. In an attempt to learn a little more about the draw of those long, empty summers, I visited the planning office at the local council and asked to take a look through their archives. Truthfully, I was mostly hoping to find some information about the park itself. A forgotten burial site, maybe, or an underground crypt still waiting to be rediscovered. You know what this podcast is by now, I'm sure. Nothing particularly jumped out about that patch of scrubland, alas. There were some other oddities I wanted to check out about the area, though. I was always struck by the way that the land near the gasometers resisted redevelopment, even as endless tract housing sprung up nearby. Outside the fencing and barbed wire, there were several fields worth of empty land, a perfect spot for a dozen little boxes made of ticky-tacky. It seems like I'm not the only one who had that thought over the years. A quick search turned up a half-dozen different applications to build there over the past 40 years, all denied for reasons not entirely clear. Each time, the land would change hands shortly afterwards, an unbroken chain of investors being hung out to dry on major construction projects. It was strange. The entire area was overrun with suburbs, but the couple of acres around the gasometers were forbidden land. I spent a couple days staying in my childhood town, diligently looking for the story there. And as I did, memories started to come back to me. Not so much memories as flashes, moments. A doctor's office. I must have been 15 or 16. Gleaming white tiles and a looming figure in a surgical mask. A light in my eyes and then nothing. I'd be walking down the familiar streets towards the corner shop to grab a packet of hobnobs and suddenly I'd be right back there. Slightly different each time, too, as though I'd been to the same place over and over. I asked my parents about it, and they didn't remember anything like it. I was a pretty healthy kid, a little bit of asthma maybe, and I certainly wasn't in and out of hospital as a teenager. It didn't make any sense. Whose memories were these? I found a helpful lead in the permit office, after a fashion. The chain of ownership was mostly a series of generic property developers, all real but all fairly identical, with only one exception. Alexander Kolevatov, or as I knew him, Alex, lived in a dilapidated bungalow at the top of our street, a relic from when it was still farmland, before the chalk pits and then the suburbs. He'd spent his entire life up there, the son of the farmer who originally owned the sprawling acreage which now houses hundreds of families. He was in his 70s when I was a teenager, and I remember walking down the overgrown dirt track to his front door on my paper round, through the little wooded patch which was too close to the cliff to build on. The place always looked a little precarious, closer to the quarry than anything else around it. His garden, overgrown to the point of chaos, but still with the remains of planters and trellises visible underneath it all, had lost its back fence into the pit years ago, 
and now the fences on either side hung accusingly over the edge, a warning to the houses below. As a kid, I was convinced the place was haunted. I still am a little, to be honest. My mum looked out for Alex over the years, towards the end especially. Buying him groceries and such, checking up on him, occasionally taking a shot at tidying his garden. He didn't have any relatives left, his elder brother having absconded to Australia with any family money from the land sale years ago, and he badly damaged his spine in a car accident in the late 80s, which meant walking was a constant struggle for him. He was... pleasantly grouchy, if that makes sense. All he'd ever really wanted was to take over his father's farm, but he'd had to make do with the garden out back instead, where he mostly grew his own food until the accident left him reliant on whatever he could get from the dwindling remains of the social safety net. Bitter is a cruel word, but I would apply it to Alex with a sense of ruefulness, a man embittered who had bitterness thrust upon him by a world he just couldn't seem to catch up to. I liked him. Every grudge he held seemed reasonable, given the circumstances of his final years. I asked my mum about Alex, uh, about the land at the bottom of the street. It turns out he didn't own the whole lot, that was absolutely not in his price range. But he managed to pick up one corner of the field in a fire sale when a property company went bankrupt. This was back before his accident, in the mid-80s, at a time when most of the land nearby was getting quickly bought up for housing. He didn't have any interest in that, though. He bought a couple of pigs and set up to raise them as livestock. It was a weird spot to do it, all things considered, with limited space and very little ability to expand. But he was a hard-headed sort, more caught on the dream of farming than the reality. To hear him tell it, these couple of months in the summer of 87 were the happiest time of his life. He'd wake up early and head down to feed the pigs, and then set up in a deck chair with a book, a spy thriller or hard sci-fi usually, and he'd while away the hours watching the world rush by, on its way to work or back and forth from the construction sites in the old quarry. Neighbourhood kids would come by with apples to feed the pigs, and he'd usually grab a beer or two from the off-licence towards the end of the evening. It wasn't much, but for him, it was idyllic. Pigs burrow and churn the land, though, and in short order, he started receiving threatening letters from the gasometer company about disruption to their services. Something about damaging the underground pipework? Alex was certain it was bullshit, and they were just trying to bully him out of the last patch of land he had left. He wrote back and told them to kick rocks. He bought that spot fair and square, and he was going to raise pigs on it come hell or high water. The letters kept coming, getting ever more threatening, until Alex eventually sent them a letter which was just the word NO in large font with his signature underneath. He figured that would get the message across. A week passed with no further response. Then, 
One morning, he walked down the street to check on his pigs and found them dismembered, split straight along their backs. Their entrails spread in a messy pattern across his little patch of dirt. The next day, he went down there with a shovel and he started digging. While I was researching all of this, the nightmare started. Hospital room, surgical mask, blinding white light, a searing pain in the back of my skull. I wake up and it's still there. I'm in my childhood bedroom, surrounded by photocopied planning permission applications and maps at the bottom of my street, a stack of Alex's papers kept by my mum after he died. His illegible scrawl spread across the margins of bank statements, lawyers' letters, water bills. The man never bought a notepad in his life, but boy did he like to write. I settle back down and I'm in the same dream again. Hospital room, surgical mask, blinding white light, pain and movement under the skin at the top of my spine. Repeat. I wake up and reach for the back of my neck. I swear, I can feel something there, just beneath the surface. In late September of 1987, Alex started digging in the mud, the gasometers looming overhead. It was lashing down with rain, but he was furious. It was his land, he could do whatever the hell he wanted with it. As he threw shovels full of wet earth behind him, he was surprised to hit something solid, barely a foot beneath the surface. The dirt refilled the hole almost as quick as he could push it aside, but after an hour or so, he'd uncovered enough to realise that there was something huge and metallic buried underground, something which sloped and tapered downwards from the gasometers. A broad, flat surface, completely smooth, with no rivet marks, deep black, the type of black which seems to devour all light which shone into it. Scrabbling on his hands and knees, he managed to trace a seam in the metal, too thin to fit his shovel in. Then, just as he was about to give up and head home for some different tools, a hissing sound came from within. A distinct, antiseptic smell followed, and he was overcome with a sense of profound calm as he slumped down into the dirt. That's the last thing he remembers before waking up in a hospital two days later, handcuffed to the bed. They said he'd been drink driving and hit a tree, badly damaging his spine. He was covered in cuts and bruises, including a broad incision along the back of his neck. They made him sign something, and then they took away his driver's license. He lost the land, and retreated from the world almost entirely. When he told my mum this story, he did it from a hospital bed, through a constant scalding pain, emanating from the same spot on his neck. Two days later, he was dead. Last night, I did surgery on myself. 
shaving mirror propped behind me, bathroom mirror in front. I could see a thin, white scar hidden beneath the hair on the back of my head. I'd shaved the patch with a straight razor, trying to find the thing I could feel burning a hole in my dreams. I washed the area with antiseptic and carefully reopened the old scar tissue. It stung like hell. I could feel the razor digging into my nerve eddings, the warm blood oozing out until the cut was wide enough for me to get a finger inside. And there, I find it. Something smooth and alien beneath my fingertips. Something I know, deep in my bones, should not be there. I pull and keep pulling, blood running down my back. I can feel wires between my fingers still attached on the inside. Pulling them out feels like clearing a sinus in my spinal column. Eventually, the last tendrils slide out through the wound and I exhale, lightheaded before dropping it in the sink. A chip. The familiar warmth, that iron smell of blood. About the size of a penny, rounded, dark, metallic. Long, angel hair copper wires running out from the side, maybe a dozen of them in each direction. I just pulled this thing out my spine. I pulled this thing out of my spine. Outside my window, flashing lights, green and yellow flickering quickly. Police car? Can't be. The chip starts beeping and chittering in my hand, still glistening with blood. It vibrates urgently. Glad I never did this before while it was still inside. At least, as far as I can remember. My memories are coming back. I remember the field at the bottom of my street. I remember watching the gasometers. I remember many hours watching the gasometers. I remember the door rising from the ground with a calming hiss, hidden in a patch of woods. I remember the hallway. I remember the room. I remember the calm, antiseptic smell of the room, the bright white lights. I remember the doctor. I remember their height. They towered over me, limbs elongated to strange proportions, face obscured, surgical mask. I remember being calm and being quiet and being cut open straight along my spine, studied as I moved. I remember the tools. I remember the buzz of the drill, night after night. I remember the smell. I remember how calm I felt. I remember the smell. I remember one night, in the dusky early hours, standing alone in the park. I remember watching the top of the gasometers open and a broad, circular craft launching vertically out of it, silent as the still night air. I remember flashing lights green and yellow. 
I don't try to run as the smell creeps back in under the door of my flat, the gentle gas lulling me back into a stupor, the chip falling from my hands. I'm just calm. I'm just calm. I remember the smell. I'm just calm. I'm just... episode of Subterraneans, Little Compton Street, Baby Teeth, and the road that rises up to meet you. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app since it really helps getting my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can access transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex, who live in a town where you can't smell a thing and watch their feet for cracks in the pavement. Subterranean Season 3 will be five episodes long. I'll be releasing this season fortnightly, starting from today. I hope you'll come along with me on the journey. Thanks for listening.